Cool. Hi, everyone. So uh, welcome to what has become now the mental health in tech, um, I guess, podcast. And um, we are we have some big JavaScript names in, in the house at the moment. Um, I think there is a I say this as a joke, but I do think there, there is a bit of an overlap between people in the world of JavaScript and, you know, tr- having to deal with un- uncertainty, ambiguity, ambiguousness. And, you know, yeah, I, I think, uh, let me put it this way. I do think uh, there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes by working within the world of JavaScript as opposed to Python or Rust or, or whatever. So, but yes, that was the worst intro ever, but you know, let's, let's just go with that. So, um, we are very fortunate t- tonight to have a cable here. Um, I know him quite well from the JS Party um, podcast. I, I listen to it quite a lot. I, I usually listen to it in the evenings when I go um, go with my daughter and, and do a walk around in the neighborhood and so forth. Um, but yeah, so but he's also involved in in things beyond JavaScript, specifically in terms of the human side of tech and so forth. So there's there's a lot of nice overlap there that that, that I'm super excited to talk about. Um, Skald Nietling will also just give a bit more um, of an overview of exactly kind of where some nice areas might be where things overlap. But yeah, um, I'll I'll have Skald do a, do more of a concise intro of, of cable but um effectively one thing that we've started doing from our very first guest to introduce this to us is every session to as part of the introductions to just do a check-in where we are emotionally mentally um and so forth and just take that moment to kind of set a stage for some type of emotional vulnerability and openness and so Honestly, on my side, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm struggling quite a bit. Um, it's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of work related stuff, and I'm just like, it's that I have to compartmentalize because, like, thinking about everything at once is like it, it'll like it's crushing. Um, there's just so many things that are in their own right just really challenging, challenging to deal with. So. Yeah, I'm having a hard time in terms of like the compounding nature of work-related stuff and then also everything else that comes with just like being alive in 2023. And, you know, the, yeah, like it's it's tough. It's financially tough. It's, yeah, there's a lot going on. So last couple of weeks, I've been having a bit of a tough time. Um, maybe also it's maybe pronounced a bit more by the year also coming to an end which I think kind of emphasizes a lot of these type of things a bit more. Um, but yeah, it's I'm trying to roll with it, trying to just take it one bit at a time. Um, yeah, Skulk Nietling, do you want to do a quick intro of who you are, um, do a quick check-in and, and then hand over to the guest? Sounds great. Um, yeah, sorry to hear that things are tough, but I, I'm not going to make it much better because yeah things are tough for me as well and yeah especially on the financial side with the business like uh, things are very very touch and go at the moment um i have some cool things in in the pipeline so to speak but um to be honest um they couldn't happen too soon but 
you know, so it's it's extremely stressful, and it, and it's really hard to be focused and creative if your brain is is occupied by the capitalist nature of our world. Um, so yeah, I mean, so in general, I'm okay if it wasn't for money, but unfortunately, it it exists, and we we need it to survive and to live. So yeah, I I, I totally get it. And um, I listened to an episode of the Rich Roll podcast a week or so ago, and um, he was talking to the woman who wrote everything all at once. And um, yeah, sometimes that's life, right? Eh? Sometimes everything all at once. And you have to compartmentalize, but life has this funny way of saying, oh, I see your compartments there. Let me just, uh, how's that now? And she's like, no, no, Don't no, no, no. Don't you put that on me, no. That, that, that's not how I had it an hour ago. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. But here we are. Um, I, I, I did a little video earlier today, and I was just like, you know, I think you need to find the thing that makes you, makes you happy still through all of it. And try and focus on that as much as you can. Have have something to look to look at, to look towards, to to dream about, to hope for that that you can just cherish a little. You know, like like uh, what's his face, um, the dude from Lord of the Rings with his ring. You know, he's precious. Have your little precious that you can just sometimes go sit and just just rub a little. Schmeagel. Schmeagel. There we go. Our cat was called Schmeagel. I forgot the name. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, it's. It's been pretty good. It's been, it's been okay. It's been okay. I have so many questions, <laughs> but let's, let's just let's just let's just go with that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been generally good. But yeah, I mean, I, I like you. I know of Cable from Jay's Party. I'm a huge Changelog fanboy, um, and so I listen to all their podcasts. I've got the fire hose open on my phone, constantly just dropping in, and I'm on the Slack and everything. And so I was listening to an episode of I think it's Changelog and Friends. Where Jared and folks are talking with with Cable about his his some of the things he's doing now, and they were mentioning about human skills, and I was like, "Whoa, wait, this sounds really interesting." And there's some overlap here with with what we're trying to do. You know, like I mentioned before we started recording this, you know, there's a lot of podcasts talking about the technical side of of tech, and you know, you can even filter it down to web specific. And even then, there's there's a number of podcasts talking about that, but there aren't very many that talks about about the soft skills and when they do it tends to be no shade no lemonade but it tends to be more folks on the hr side or on the like um, marketing side kind of stuff like that it's it's hard to find a podcast where it's folks writing code in the coding world in the design world talking about how they're dealing with working in this world and dealing with like you said uh skulk about the uncertainty um of your job, but then also just of the technology that you work and the speed at which it evolves and, and having to try and stay stay up to date with all of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I just thought, hey, man, there's a really cool conversation that can happen here. And that's what we try and do here, right? We just throw a couple of people on a camera and we record the audio and we see what pops out on the other end. And so far, it's been great. So I thought, why not? So with that, am I going to hand it over to Cable? Hello. Yes. Well, thank you, Skulk and Skulk, for having me on, uh, for inviting me. Um, and I guess a little background for anyone who isn't familiar with JS Party. Uh, I'm a longtime technologist. I've been in the tech industry around about 20 years at this point. 
mostly kind of in software development in the web area, done a little bit in other weird places, have kind of meandered back and forth between engineer, engineering manager, back there's this wonderful phrase, um, the the career pendulum, where you go back and forth between staff engineer and, and engineering manager. I've been doing that probably for 10 or 15 years at this point. Um, and yeah, I've started this project about a year ago to really try to flesh out the human side of the tech industry a little bit. And, and for a couple of reasons. So one is, as you highlight, and I'm going to get into like my mental state as well, because I love that tradition. But as you highlight, compartmentalization doesn't work well as humans. Like it's well and good to say I have my work self and my home self and my self that is dealing with the economy and myself that is just focused on code. And at least with every person that I've known, those things end up bleeding together and interacting with one another. So thinking about our work as technologists being purely about the technology sets us up at a disadvantage. We have to understand how we as humans operate and how the people that we're interacting with operate. And I think one thing that often kind of happens in that in, in the technical world is we say, oh, that's that's not my problem. That's someone else's problem. That's fuzzy. It's hard to understand. I don't want to deal with it. And kind of my premise is we as humans, we are fuzzier than machines. However, we have patterns. We have consistencies. There are things that you can learn that will reliably improve your ability to deal with yourself and to deal with others. And so trying to flesh out from people who, who have gone through this in our industry, with our background, dealing with the same types of situations that we all have to deal with and have figured out some of those tactics and, and kind of getting along and sharing them. Now, I do want to do the reflection on where I'm at. Um, I think it is a hard time right now for many reasons. The economy is hard. The world is hard. Um, I have extended family living in the Middle East. That emotional stuff is weighing no matter where you are in that, like that is, is hard and it makes it hard to focus on the work we do every day because people are dying. <laughs> and you're, if you have any connection to it, even if you don't, you're getting bombarded with all these messages and all this, these news of violence. So it's a, it's a hard time. I do think it's important, as you said, to find, find something that helps you reset and avoid all of that and not think about all of that because there are always going to be bad things that we could be focusing on. And social media makes this much worse because social media shoves it all in your face. You go and read the news every day, it shoves it all in your face. And we're in this incredibly connected environment where even if there was very little bad going on, that would be what was highlighted to us and we would have our focus on it. So I think for me, what I try to do is start with my immediate family take joy in their current state of health and happiness and what I can control around me. I have a practice I started years and years ago when I was a startup co-founder, which skulked me like I feel your stress there. <laughs> it, there's a to detour very, very slightly. Um, I've found people who have never gone through that process. If you say, oh yeah, I, I started a company, they'll say, oh, that's so cool. Like, is it really fun? Are you really excited? And people who've been through that process or, or know someone very closely who's been through their process will be more like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Because it's so, so hard and so stressful. So I'm not in that world today. I work for another person's startup. 
I don't have quite that level of stress over my head. Uh, but when I did, I, I started this process, uh, this uh, habit that I tried to continue to today, which is every day, close to every day, I will go on a walk that I call a gratitude walk. I'll walk outside. I'm thankful I live in California where the weather is almost always beautiful and amenable to this. Walk outside and find something to be grateful for. Maybe it's living in a beautiful neighborhood. Maybe it's the sky is particularly beautiful today. Maybe it's I found some really cool bug on the sidewalk. But find a moment to be grateful. And uh, digging into the mental health side, this actually taps into three psychological things that are true for pretty much all human beings. One is called, in the psych world, is called behavioral activation. If you move your body around, you will feel better. This is one of the things they talk about when you're depressed. Just get out and walk. I know you don't feel like it. If you move your body around, it mechanically will make you feel better. Um, so behavioral activation. Second is mindfulness. You're having to sort of be present in a moment. That is also, that's an exercise of focus, but also helps with mental health. And the third is gratitude. Finding something to be grateful for is one of the best uh, evidenced ways to help yourself feel better. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I keep myself grounded, even with the chaos that is the world around. And now I've, I've been talking for a while. I am also excited to just sort of see where this conversation goes. Um, I love this topic of mental health. I love the topic area of just how do we as human beings become better as humans. I, I also have to, I have to also start with a disclaimer that um, I, I I have load shedding in, in half an hour. So um, you guys are probably going to continue the conversation without me. So I'm just going to go hard in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> Sorry, Skog, yet like stand aside, buddy. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, kidding mostly. But um, I, 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 I appreciate what what you're saying about the startup thing. Um, you know, I do consultancy work, so I, I I'm I'm busy, somewhat possibly doing a startup project with a friend of mine. But that's also just you know, lot slower pace. It's it's kind of a after hours thing. Um, but I, I do say I, I kind of feel the same about. Uh, getting married yeah and not like the traditional boomer sense like of like oh i hate my wife but i i mean in terms of the the wedding itself um having gone through that process i i think before i got married myself um i was like oh so cool now when i attend a wedding like i'm like i, I look at the bride and the groom and i'm like you poor people like my condolences. I'm so How are glad. You doing? I'm, are you okay? I'm yeah. so glad I'm not where you are right now. <laughs> I'm so glad that's in the past. Um, but yeah, like it's, uh, I know it's the same as well. Like if you haven't gone through it, people are like, oh, wedding is so magical or whatever. Or whatever. And it's like, no, it's, it is so stressful and you're just so glad it's done. Um, but yeah, so, but like, I'm just going to dive straight into it. So I, I think one thing that, I personally want to definitely touch and, and, and speak about um, during this conversation is um, kind of a previous uh, Jazz Party specific episode that, that where you guys spoke about, you know, learning to code. And I think it was like fundamentals all the way down or something was, was, was the name of the episode. 
and um, you were also talking about like like coaching in terms of sports coaching and and you know I don't know whether it was you speaking about like kind of if if you just let the kids do what they want they're just going to want to shoot hoops the whole day um, you know but you need to teach them to do the drills and and and, and whatever um, and like I think that that was such as someone who's in the world of academia and have students as well and also do training of other lecturers. Um, I actually shared shared that specifically with them because I, I found it very relatable. But I think another thing that I also found very, like, r- not necessarily relatable, but something that has been on my mind that I also got from that as well is the emotional side of learning to code. Um, I have to say that 99, and I tell this to all, all my students as well, 99% of the time, when I've either just seen people lose motivation or just, you know, feel that they can't do this and they just take a step back and they're going to do something else. Um, and which is also one of the things as well, like people like talking about fundamentals and so forth, people are always like, yeah, don't, don't let them start with the react. Like they need to learn the dumb first and, you know, they need to understand like, you know, um, computer science principles and whatever. But like, I think one thing that that neglects, I agree in principle, is that your biggest challenge in the beginning is people losing motivation and not only losing motivation, but also just learn, like losing confidence in their own ability to actually learn this thing. Um, And so I'm curious in terms of the stuff you've been doing with human skills and so forth. There's obviously a lot that's about interpersonal skills and co-workers and and, and an office environment. Um, I'm curious whether there have been any discussions or any tangential discussions around kind of the dynamics when learning to code and, and what whether it's even worth well personally i obviously believe the answer is yes but like what dimension talking about the emotional side of that should be part of like t- curriculums yeah. and, and courses and, and and stuff yeah so there's a couple different pieces here i think the core question if i'm understanding you correctly is really around learning and one yes. of the things that has come up in a few of the human skills conversations. And I think also is echoed in my experience as a soccer coach, working with my kids, doing other things is that there are different models for learning. Different people learn differently. Um, I'm going to, I'll use examples for my kids because kids are a great example for, for just about anything. I have one kid who is very goal oriented. You set him a goal. Maybe you help him break down, okay, if you do this, it'll help you get there. And he will set out and he will do every step and he is rock laser focused on that goal. I have another kid who, if the thing is boring, he's not going to do it. He cannot make the connection between the thing that I'm doing today and the goal I'm trying to get to. And so if I want to help him learn something for that goal, I need to figure out how the thing you're doing today is itself valuable and fun and interesting. I think that plays out a lot learning to code. Some people geek out on fundamentals. We love it. I mean, I, I kind of geek out on fundamentals. I like understanding the deep underpinnings of how something works. That is intrinsically satisfying for me. 
other folks like to see something on the screen doing something cool. And that is what is motivating for them. And so I think as we think about what is the right way to teach something, we need to bear in mind that it's going to be different for different people. As you highlight, motivation is a real challenge. And the, the beautiful thing about starting with a modern web stack is you can get from zero to something on a screen and not only on a screen, on a screen that you can share with people around the world very, very quickly. And then you can provide opportunities for the person who's interested in fundamentals. Oh, do you know why that works? Let's dig into that. You want to dive through down? Let's look, look at the database layer. How do databases work? Well, let me show you. Here we go. Let's keep digging down. Someone else may not care in the slightest, but they want to know how to make this thing that they've designed more beautiful. And then you start bringing them off on CSS and you kind of go in that direction. That's hard to do in a large classroom, but I think when we talk about how do we keep people going, how do we keep people learning, the key to me is that there are large individual differences in both how people learn and how they are motivated. And when we design our teaching, we should at least have that in mind and provide kind of doors or hooks for people who are interested in different things to go down those different directions. Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal answer. Um, so maybe a follow-up question I would ask on that is, you know, there is some nuance here, you know, like obviously like sport or something isn't a hundred percent equivocal like comparison because at the end of the day, that person should also be able to get a job. You know, like I, I think uh, it's not that when your kid is doing soccer or, or basketball or whatever that, um, the aim there is specifically that they're actually going to pursue it as a career. I, I think that would change the dynamic quite a bit. Um, so I think because the flip side of this is what I've seen also is that what a lot of boot camps and stuff do is they teach the stuff that's easy to teach and that's fun, but not the stuff that's useful and harder and more... And I think this is where the emotional side comes in, requires some emotional resilience. Once again, you know, I come back to the ideas around like abstraction, you know, like I, I honestly believe that like, like a good understanding of abstraction is the biggest problem with the kind of current group of new developers that are coming into the industry. Because I think for a lot of us, we, the only way we could do things was through the low level tooling. And then obviously, you know, you had to master the low level tools to even be able to do something. And then all these abstractions like react and so forth came along and it's like, Whoa, this takes all this other stuff I had to do. And it just makes it so much easier where I think someone coming into the industry right now, as you rightfully mentioned, have immediate access to all these great stuff where it's literally just NPM create Vite at latest or whatever. Boom, there you go. You know, like even four or five years ago, you had to spin up, you had to configure your own Webpack file. And if you wanted to use TypeScript, good luck getting the TypeScript like compiler to play nice with Webpack, you know? So um, do you think that there's also a danger in terms of expecting the learning process to be engaging and fun and captivating and not having some type of emotional resilience in terms of 
I'm going to sit with the boring stuff now. I'm going to sit with the stuff that's not rewarding and that's frustrating. So I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of how do you strike that balance? Yeah, so I think it's worth making a distinction between things are going to be boring and things are going to be hard. And one of the things that... So there's been this sort of real big push to say anyone can learn to code. And I think broadly that is a push in the right direction because we should not be in a world where we're gatekeeping around this. I do think anyone can learn to code. I do think this is a very learnable skill. However, I think often because we were pushing in the industry against this idea that coding is this special elite thing only a few people could use, we have said everyone can learn to code and that has been translated or heard as learning to code is easy. And that is a very different statement. And that is a statement that in my mind disservices the people who are then trying to learn. Because learning to code is not easy. It's not easy for anyone. It's not easy for your savant who's figuring it out, whatever. They just went through it at a different time in a different place and they dealt with that frustration earlier. Learning to code is hard. It's a, I mean, software development is probably the deepest stack of abstractions that exists anywhere in our modern world. You can get four, by the, if you're building a web app, you are building your application abstraction on top of React, which is on top of a concept of a component, which is on top of JavaScript, which is on top of a browser, which is on top of an OS, which is on top of, like, it goes down so many levels. And yeah, not even talking about like HTTP and, and all that stuff. All yeah. of those different things. I am hard pressed to find anywhere else in the world that has so many different levels of abstraction. That's hard. That's a lot. And those of us who've been in the industry a long time, we maybe got to learn before some of those layers were developed. So we didn't have quite this incredible massive stack of abstractions that we had to think about in order to get to a level of mastery. And then we could add them incrementally as they were developed and created. So I believe it's a disjustice to, to lead people to believe it's going to be easy. It's going to be hard. However, I do think we should be willing to tap into and, and hold ourselves to the bar of saying, you know what? All along the way, you should be able to do something interesting. I did not study computer science in college because the first computer science class I went to was a Java programming class that was terribly boring. And I said, this is terribly boring. I don't want to do this. And I went and I studied physics, which we did. We ended up doing some interesting software stuff later, but there it was in service of doing some physical modeling, doing something where I could see what I was trying to accomplish. And then later got out in the world and discovered there are no jobs for physics BS, but you can still get a job in the tech industry. And taught myself a lot about software on the job. So, you know, I, I think if we, if we go too far in the direction of, yes, there's some hard stuff and so this has to be boring, we end up in that world where we're pushing away people who otherwise could be incredible software developers. Uh, but there is a difference between saying this can be fun and relevant and saying this is going to be easy. It's not easy. 
Jeez, that is such a great answer. And it's it's interesting. I have a very similar story. I started out with like Turbo Pascal. And then when I actually started, and that was just like me playing around, you know, like very much the same with like early days, FTP, GeoCities, all of that stuff. And then, you know, like when I started getting into, com- into programming proper, my introduction was Java. And I was like, this is insane. There's obviously something wrong with me. Jo- like Java's not the problem. <laughs> Jeez, I have to be very careful about what I say right now. Um, I'll but- say it. Java's the problem. It's a miserable <laughs> okay. programming language most of the and- time. Now, once again, once you get past yeah. a level, it is a, it's <laughs> phenomenal for some problem domains. But it's a yeah, miserable it's introductory a- language. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Um, it's like pretty much the worst way you can introduce someone to programming. Um, but anyway, so, but like, I'm, I'm yeah, so, jeez, uh, that was such a great answer. But um, Skulk, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I Obviously, like, you've also been involved with a lot of the stuff with Mycelium Network and so forth. And so you obviously have a very different kind of... M- I almost want to say paradigm where the people you encounter are people that already have that motivation. And they are like, I want to get involved in this. Um, Like I'm excited about coding and whatever. Whereas I I may be working in a world where there are people that are still figuring out whether this is for them. Um, Yeah. But I'm specifically because of that, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, that's true. Um, but what I have found is, and I think that it speaks directly to what Cable just said, was this whole idea that we've made it sound that learning to code is easy, um, is that people do run into it very enthusiastically. But as soon as they hit the first couple of stumbling blocks of things that they have come to understand shouldn't be hard, they they turn around and blame themselves like you did with Java. Um, and they say, I guess I'm just too stupid for this. Like somebody has literally said this to me on, on I think it was the second or third um, Mycelium Network podcast where, um, where Isabel said like she felt like maybe she's just not smart enough to do this. And I was like, it, it sucks because it's not that. It's just that it's been painted wrong. You, you were shown the wrong painting and now you thought it's like it's just color in the dots, but it turns out there's quite a lot of things that you have to figure out yourself. It's not a linear path that's been drawn for you. You just jump on each little pebble and you'll you'll get to where everybody else is. Um, so I think to some extent that's true, but I do also agree with the whole practical aspect. I think the sooner you can you can mix in practical things, the better, because then people feel like they've accomplished something, even if it's something small. It just feels like I'm not just stuck in this minutia of theoretical things. Like that's where I oftentimes got lost because a couple of times I jumped into the whole algorithm thing. It's like, I'm going to learn this because this, you know, even if it's just for interviews, I need to know. And then... I will find something interesting, like some people on front end masters do a really good job of teaching this really well, where they make it engaging and interesting by the way they teach it. But you have to be careful because some people do it very dry. And then it's like, no, no. And it's again, I tend to not go in the direction of 
it's boring. It's more that I'm starting to think like, maybe it's boring because I'm just too stupid for this. Um, so this thing we have of this negativity bias where we keep like turning things around on us and saying, it's not, it's not them, it's me. Um, but what I want to like kind of tie that all, bring that all together to is that is why I still believe so strongly that open source is such a underutilized ecosystem for teaching because when you when you go into the open source space you can you can come at it from different levels and at different levels in your knowledge but you're also going to have to deal with the human aspect of it because there's issues that needs to be filed you need to understand them if you want to if you want to contribute you need to read the issue you might you might need to have to ask somebody hey um i'd like to contribute to this and fix this but i'm not sure where to begin and then you get to work with different people some people is going to come back with a snarky comment and like if you don't understand the issues probably not for you and other people who are very very kind and who are like ah oh, it's great that you're interested. Like, what have you done so far? What have you tried? Where, what's your questions? You get to understand that there's different ways that people interact in this world and it's not always great. And then you have to start dealing with how do I deal with that? And you need to build up a support network of other people who can tell you like, I can tell you in this situation, it's not you. It's the wrong project. Let me guide you towards something that's more beginner friendly or maybe just more decent humans are, 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 are working on this, on this stuff. So, yeah, I just think like, for, and I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this because I always like tout this as like the missing piece of, of a lot of educational curricula, I guess, is just this idea of bringing people, but it's hard to do at the same time, is bringing people together around an open source project or a combination of open source projects. That's what I'm trying to do with my CDM network, but it's very time consuming as well. So I struggle doing that. Um, but I do think there's something there. I think there's something there where people can learn not only how to write code, but also to think about solving problems and solving problems that's meaningful to them and using tools and um, workflows that'll serve them while in their career, wherever they may go. Um, and you have to deal with the human, the human skills. You you said the magic open source word or, or phrase or uh, combined words or, and honestly, like uh, that's almost like uh, humans and open source, uh, specifically humans in open source is, is, is almost like a topic for an entire podcast on its own. Um, Cable, if I'm not mistaken, you are very. I might be. Apologies for my ignorance if I completely get this wrong, but you were quite involved in Zurb, were you not? Yeah, so I worked for the company Zurb for mm. about two years, if I recall correctly. Yeah, who, who did Foundation? They did Zurb Foundation. And so for mm. a part of my time there, I actually led that project. And mm. so I was very involved. At the time, I was one of the big things that I was working on was trying to make it more of a community project. Uh, it, mm. Zurb Foundation was one of those classic company-run open source projects where, yes, they, in theory, accept contributions, but mostly it's coming from inside of the company. And what, during my time there, we managed to transition it to something that was company-led, but still, but had much more open source participation. And there's a, a young man I remember who 
essentially did what, what Skolf Niefling is talking about here, grew up in his software development on that project. I remember his first attempt at a contribution, the PR had 150 comments and it never got merged. It got closed. But the thing that, that set him apart was he kept coming. He did not get you know, defer or I'm missing the word. He did not take the that feedback, the fact that his initial PR kept having to get worked and kept having to get worked and never actually got merged as a reason to not keep engaging. And part of that was our job as contributors, we and as maintainers, we were engaging him. We were being productive in our feedback. His first stuff was terrible, but he took the feedback and he learned from it and he kept contributing. He became a core contributor. And I later worked with him. I subcontracted stuff to him when I was working as a contractor, doing things. Like he took himself from very bare bones development to being a successful developer. So it's it's definitely possible. Now, the caveat there is it takes a ton of time and energy. And one of the dangers of having open source as the solution for people learning is it depends on people having the kind of time and energy to invest in that as a learning mechanism. And that can be very hard. And it does, often doesn't get accounted for in the way that, for example, a formal education might. You can get a loan to go and do a boot camp and focus on that as your time. It's a lot harder to get a loan to spend a bunch of time contributing to an open source project out in the world. 100%. And, and you know, we also have the, we also have the, what do we, the hindsight of knowing that that's a good thing. Like, that guy, that might have very well been a story where it's like, this, this crazy guy just kept on like, and we don't know what was wrong with him. And like, why was he wasting all this time on open source? He could have done like actual programming work, could have done a course or something. So obviously in hindsight, we know that that was a good thing, you know, like, because yeah, it we ended know, up working out, but it could very easily have not. It's true. No, but I don't even mean in that regard. I mean, like as people in the world of software, we know that that's a good thing. And that's something that is that's useful to your journey. But as someone who doesn't know anything, you know, like you don't have that. You might be like, am I just waste? Is this going to make me even a better developer? I don't know. Um, but it's interesting. Like I've, I've had a very similar kind of experience with uh kind of Jason Miller and Preact and all that stuff. Like um, I was very involved kind of in the the Preact project in the very early days and so forth. And um, obviously I've like done a bit of contributions here and there, but a lot of the value I got from that is, you know, and like I, I just have so much respect for Jason and, you know, cause he's doing a lot of web component stuff now at Google is being part of those conversations. The same with the Netlify CMS. I was also very uh, in the early days, very involved with that. And you, you almost get you get a you get a you get a little bit of a peek into the way these people think. Um, you know, the way someone who maintains something at the level of preact or whatever, what they're thinking is how they make decisions and being part of that conversation. I, there's something really empowering in your career in terms of having that as something that you can model like, yeah. And without maybe even realizing it, maybe subconsciously. Yeah. 
Mm. Bringing it back a little bit to mental health, though, it takes yes. a lot of self-confidence to engage at that and engage with those people. And not every maintainer has the patience, skills, and other things to help bring along someone who is really junior. And so you have to also expect that some maintainers will react negatively or not react and ghost you and not respond at all. That's hard to do if you're new in the industry. I have a coaching client who is trying to break into the industry. He's a career switcher and he's self-taught to code. And a lot of what we've worked on is getting comfortable reaching out to people and connecting with people in the industry. And this is a pretty open industry. People, a fair number of people will respond if you even do a cold outreach to them. But that's a very stressful thing to do. I think if it's sincere, I, I obviously, I... A lot of people reach out to me as well. And, you know, like, and it's, it's, you can very easily see whether it's sincere or whether it's like just opportunistic. Um, like, yeah, I, I, you can't really describe it, but you get a sense of are they like playing an angle here or are they like, listen, can I chat to you about JavaScript for a bit? Like, I'm curious what your thoughts are or whatever. Um, yeah, but that's such an important thing. I always tell my students, go to meetups, go to meetups, go to meetups. Um, it, like, because, and it is about who you know. And, 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 and whether that's fair or not is irrelevant. The, the, the thing being that hiring someone to work on a software project is a massive risk. It's, and, and, and as much as you can mitigate that risk in terms of, at the very least, knowing that something about this person's character, knowing whether they consistently show up to things or, or whatever, like that already gives you such a, like, like, I don't know, given two candidates, one that you know nothing about, one that you know personally, I, like in terms of risk mitigation, like, I would almost certainly go with the person at the very least who I've met a couple of times in person. Granted that, you know, the, the, the technical level is kind of at the same, but yeah, like, I think that's so under understated. I think there's such an overemphasis on just get some projects on GitHub, um, you know, like build a app, put it on GitHub, build something in React Native, put it on GitHub, and that's going to land you the job, you know, just having a smooth GitHub profile. Yeah. I mean, there's a piece of this that even if you don't, I mean, I think we, none of us wants to be biased. The reality is we all are biased in some ways and we will like somebody that we meet better than somebody we haven't. But even putting that aside, if we're talking about job applications, having been someone who's been a hiring manager, you put a job online, you get flooded. You get hundreds of people sending resumes, they all have GitHub profiles, they all have this, they all have that. And you're trying to either use some sort of automated tool to screen down or like very quickly glance at them to understand who's going to be worth talking to because you cannot interview 500 people. There aren't enough hours in the day. And so people, anytime you're applying to a job cold without talking to anyone, you're going into that queue of and 500, these are small companies, right? If you're applying to a Facebook or a Google, that's, that queue is thousands and thousands long. However, if you reach out to somebody who works there, you have a coffee conversation or you met them at a meetup, something like that. It's a very low bar for most people in most companies to do a referral. 
and they can say, I know this guy socially. I don't actually know his code quality, but he seems like a good guy or she seems like a good guy. That's still a referral. And what it does is it gets you past that screen to talk to a human. Because once you're talking to a human, you have a fair shot. And now it's about you. It's not about did you properly optimize your resume in whatever way this particular job is screening and doing whatever. It's about, no, I'm connecting to a human being and talking about the job and what their needs are. And maybe I meet them. And you've taken your odds from one in 3,000 to one in 50 or whatever it is. And it makes a huge difference. But I also think the key there being, and maybe I'm just, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder because like I'm on the receiving end of this so much, um, is that like it needs to be sincere. Oh, if you're, if you're doing it, if you're kind of doing some type of hustle where you're trying to befriend someone to get an in at a company, like they're going to pick up on that. Like they're going to pick on that. Like don't like build a network, go to meetups, engage, um, not from some place of expectation, but because, you know, that is just like, you are just growing the possibility of those type of things happening organically. Mm -hmm. Don't try and game it. But like, obviously it's, it's almost like that thing I always want to say, what's it? The more you practice, the luckier you get. It's <laughs> yeah. like, obviously the, the, the more you engage with the community, the, the more likely these type of things are to happen. Like I've been in interviews where, Literally the person like that was I was interviewing or the person that interviewed me earlier on in my career. I'm like, hey, I didn't know it was you applying for the job, you know, like to have those moments. Um, and like, obviously, the more you just engage with the community at large, the more likely those things are to happen. But don't don't try and game it and min max it and totally, see like, totally. okay, who should I well, talk to? Who shouldn't I talk to? Yeah. I think the, the thing that I'm pushing for is don't think about applications as a numbers game. Actually, think about you are trying to figure out which human beings you would like to work with, and they are trying to figure out which human beings they would like to come work with them. And so there is value in talking with them and seeing, is this a person I want to work with? And connecting with them as a human being. And if you would like to work with them and they would like to work with you, now you're much farther along. But yeah, it's, it's not about, oh, transactionally, I'm going to go have this transactional conversation and ask for a reference. It's like, talk, where are you applying? Okay, who are you likely to be working with? You can figure that out on LinkedIn in five minutes. Reach out to them and figure out, are they people you want to work with? Let them figure out, are you someone they would like to work with? That doesn't have to wait until after you've gotten through an automated screener. You can do that from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think that's why um, that's great. Yeah. for me it was it was always more thinking about where I would like to work and why I would like to work there and understanding who are the people that is there. Because for me, it's like it's all a big circular dependency almost, which is something you don't want. But in this case, you do want it. Um, uh, you know, it's like if I don't feel good about the company that I work for, then eventually all the money in the world is not going to be enough to make me be engaged. Um, if I don't feel good about the work that I'll be doing, over time the money will fade and it'll suck. Um, and if I'm constantly clashing with people because we have just a completely different cultural outlook on the world, 
all the money in the world again is not gonna gonna change that. Eventually, that's gonna dry up, and you're gonna be like, ugh, it's Monday. Oh no, I have this meeting with this person, and I really don't want to. Um, so I think for me, that's how I've approached it. Like I've looked at at the place in the world, the, the, the areas where I'm interested in, the things I feel passionate about, and then see who plays a role there, whether it be individuals or companies, and then I've connected the dots. And through then interacting with this in a sincere way, because I'm truly interested and I truly want to contribute and truly want to be part of the journey, um, I've met people and we've made connections. And then over time, that has benefited me. So when I did apply for something, I did have a better chance than probably the next person because I did have people on the inside who know me and have worked with me. Maybe that's through contributions to open source, or maybe that's because we used to work at a company before this or whatever the case may be. But yeah, I think that that is an often overlooked thing is, is that networking is important, but how you approach it can make a, a massive difference to how effective it can be for you. Yeah. No, 100%. And I maybe like I'm getting closer to load shedding here. So maybe end with this on my side and then then I'll let you guys continue the conversation. So apologies if I just cut out suddenly. But um, so one thing that I've really found super interesting is that because once again, like this this meetup stuff, the the front end development stuff, I I think we've been doing it now for close to five years. Um, And what I see happen all the time is people come and, you know, they're kind of learning to code and they're here to learn a bit more about JavaScript or CSS or whatever. And they meet someone else who's just starting out as well. And they're like, hey, let's, you know, become study buddies or whatever. And like, and they start like, they create like a private like Slack channel or whatever. And they message one another or they WhatsApp and whatever. And they're like, cool, man, I'm learning this thing. What are you learning? And, and they kind of get together and they just hack around a bit. And what eventually then happens, and I see this all the time, one of them gets hired, okay? Then another position opens for an, for another junior on the same team. Because chances are, if, if, if someone's taking on juniors, chances are they're growing their team, meaning they're bound to take on more juniors soon. So one of them gets hired immediately when, like, like they're looking for someone else that's like no this guy like before we even open this up i have this friend like you guys can trust him like you know um yeah i see that happen all the time that dynamic where you're learning with someone and that person gets a job and immediately you have an in and you know when i'm saying you have an in it sounds very cynical and whatever but what i effectively mean is like once again you shouldn't do it with that expectation and like this is a trick where if you go to a meetup and you're like who are the key players that i should chat to that might benefit my career you might miss an opportunity like that because you're like hey this guy's just learning to code what do i want to chat to him about he's not going to open any doors for me but you'd be surprised um and once again like it's it's about the sincerity like uh, yeah i cannot stress that enough but anyway i'm, I'm gonna head out before the power cuts off okay well Oh man, it was so great chatting to you. Um, big fan of the stuff you guys do with Changelog and, and, and Jay's Party and so forth. And I'm, I'm super keen to listen to the rest of this um, afterwards when Skulk uploads it. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Skulk. Good to meet you. Yeah, it's awesome. Cool. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so Cable, I'm bringing that that Skulk just said, bringing it kind of to the human skill side of it. Um, but now, as you've mentioned, rightfully so, it's dang hard to do that, even on LinkedIn. 
It's like if I click this little connect button as opposed to the follow one, will they scream at me? Or, you know, <laughs> will they be like, how dare you send me a connection request? Follow me. Um, mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we develop the, that human skill of being okay to be vulnerable and, and, you know, approaching somebody at a conference or at a meetup or online? Um, because oftentimes we see people on podcasts, we see people in GitHub, we, and they're on this pedestal, right? And it's like, I can't just communicate with that person. That, that's not going to work out. How do we get past that? Because I've, I've, I struggled with it in the beginning. I kind of forced myself to do it because I'm an introvert. So, you know, it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, totally. And, um, but now I'm a lot more comfortable with doing that. And because I've done it so many times, I know that actually people are generally nice. And if you just reach out, people are probably going to be cool with it. Just like what Skulk said, just be sincere about it. Don't, don't make it sound like a sales school because then it's going to blow up in your face. But, um, but how do we develop these human skills that is so critical in doing those things? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think networking is hard for everyone. And part of why it's hard is because I think our mental model is, oh, it's that slimy sales call. It's that slimy outreach. I'm just doing this transactionally. And I actually would love to switch the, the frame on that and say like networking, really professional networking can just be having conversations about things that are interesting to you with other people that are interested in those topics. And with that in mind, then this question of, who do I want to reach out to? How do I reach out, want to reach out to them becomes who else is interested in talking about these things that I want to talk about? And how do I propose to them that, hey, let's talk about these things. So, for example, if you are into JavaScript in the web, I can tell you, you know, if you, those panelists on JS Party, we're talking about it because we're into it, too. And so if you reach out to me on LinkedIn or whatever and like, hey, I heard you on JS Party. And I'd really love to talk about this thing that you were, were talking about. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to be excited to talk about it. Um, we just recorded a like Celebration 300 episode. And I think we even, a bunch of people shared what some of their favorite episodes were. So opportunity, if you want to talk with, I'm trying to remember who was on that show. It's, it's shipping this week. But um, like, you want to talk with Nick Nisi, go listen to that and hear what he said he was excited about. Though with Nick Nisi, like, reach out and say, I want to talk about Vim or TypeScript and he's going to be happy. Um, similarly with me, like that you want to talk about this type of human stuff. Like if you reach out, I'm going to say yes. So I think that framing is really important. That mental model, it is still intimidating. I don't know anyone for whom it's not intimidating. I have been doing this for 20 years and it's still nervous making to reach out to somebody that I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just you can practice. It gets easier with practice. It gets easier if you know why you want to talk with them and you can say that. It gets easier if you know someone else that they know or if they were recommended to you. I don't know. I don't have a great answer to this. It, no. It's it's hard. Yeah. It's one of the hard things, but like we make it harder than it has to be, I think, by by blowing up what the thing is. And it can just be like, hey, I like this thing you wrote about would you be open to talk with me more about it? Yeah, exactly. And no, for sure. It, 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 it's never 
easy. And I think it goes back to the thing we talked about learning to code. It's not easy. Let's just keep saying that over and over again so people can stop feeling bad about it when they struggle with these things. And the same goes for this. It It isn't easy. Um, there's always going to be that like, oh, I'm I'm not worthy kind of thing or I'm an imposter. Like, how, how dare I do this? Oh, this person's time is probably so valuable that speaking 10 minutes to me is just like a waste of their time. And that that sometimes comes from this idea of this transactional thing where it's transactional, like what's what's in it for me, what's in it for you, and forgetting that, hey, maybe just the human connection is enough. There doesn't need to be anything else in this. Who knows down the line, but for right now, today, it's just the human connection. It's just sharing a common interest. It's just asking a question and getting an answer. That's all. That's more than enough. Um, I'm curious, though, like with um, the Human Skills podcast that you that you do, uh, I've listened to a couple now, and of course, I listened to Sarah Drasner's because personal hero. I I totally got. She's to- phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. I totally- Me too. Me too. I was so starstruck. I was I like, know. oh my gosh. I know. When you said that at the beginning of the of the recording, I was like, I know where you're coming from. Um, there was a lot of phenomenal things in there, but um, just thinking about some of the people that you've spoken to, what are some things that have and sometimes it's hard to do this because I've also recorded a bunch and I'm starting to rack my brain like what has been if I had to do a these are things I've learned find it hard to like really recall at this moment so if it's if you're like ah, I'm not sure that's a fine answer but if there is some things that has jumped out at you like time and time again from talking to these people what what were some of these things yeah so it is it is a challenge uh, to do that and like I mean, a, a former boss of mine said, my my memory works better as a random access lookup than a, a disk scan. So like prompting it with questions is, is actually easier. So I'm going to specific go to a specific topic and share a few things. And then um, if there are other topic domains, those will probably call things out. So um, the topic domain that I'm going to go to here is around communication and particularly communication in meetings. Uh, there's an interview that I did with Bradford Foltz, who's a former coworker. Speaking of network connections that grow into something like this is somebody I worked with 15 years ago and we're still in touch. And I visit him every time that I am in his city and like, you know, I haven't worked with him in over a decade, but you know, these things can persist over time. And he talked about, Kind of when you before you go into a meeting, I'm spending a moment and thinking, okay, who are the people in this meeting? What do I what do they need from me in this meeting? Um, and he was, you know, head of an engineering organization, so often you know, these are he's got an agenda, he's trying to get things to happen, but like I'm going into a meeting and I know, you know, this is a meeting with my team, my engineers. I know a lot about these engineers. I know that you know this one's going to need the technical details, and that one's going to need to know what's the impact on timeline, and that one's going to need to know, you know, what is the failure case we need to handle, or, or however you think about it, and then making sure when you set up, you go in and you have your communication that you address each of those needs proactively. Um, I love that idea, and he talked about like you could think about it ahead of time, but even if not, like before you go into a meeting, take a breath. Stop for a minute. 
if you're going to be a minute late, it's usually not a big deal. Most of our companies are running a minute or two behind anyway. Take a minute. Think, okay, I'm going into this meeting. This meeting is about, it's a sprint kickoff. This is a sprint kickoff. These are the five or ten people who are going to be in that room, and here's what they need from me. Okay. And then you go in, and you make sure that happens. And if you're running the meeting, it's easy. If you're not running the meeting, you can still do that. You can, if it's not coming, you ask the question that says, hey, you know, can we talk about failure modes and error cases in this case? Or can we talk about the impact on deadlines? What's going on with that? You can do that type of thinking even if you're not the one running the meeting. But that um, totally made me think about like, you, you always hear going into a meeting, oh, make an agenda, do these different things. But that perspective of think about it from the human side first. Who are the people? What do they need from me? Was phenomenal. Yeah. So that's like one topic coming from communication. Mm-hmm. Other topics you want to dig into? I'm happy to, I'll, I'll look them up in my brain. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I want to like dig into that one a little bit more. How do you, th- so this is before the meeting, during the meeting, um, I had a, a good friend of mine that we used to work together at Mozilla. And um, he always said like, if you are a leader, quote unquote, um, you have a responsibility to the other people in the meeting to ask again the quote unquote stupid question. You know, when somebody Mm -hmm. asks or uses an acronym or something that like, you know what it means, but you know that there's other people in this meeting that don't know what it means or might not know what it means. Or it's like something about the project that you know, but maybe there's somebody new that's joined and you're like, they probably don't know the history. How important do you see that the role of the leader, the the engineering manager or whatever, to ensure that they pick up on those moments and then be the one to ask that stupid question so that they open up the floor that others feel more comfortable to do so? I think it's super important that you have somebody doing that. It may be the engineering manager. It may be your tech lead. It may be someone else it is usually a leader it's kind of a leadership level responsibility so it's usually someone who is a little bit more senior and experienced but yeah that's absolutely important i like to say there's no stupid questions there's only questions that show you're missing context and to your point you as a manager or leader often know more about what context different people have And if you have that in your mind, if you've done the exercise of thinking, what do each of these people need? And sometimes it's, they need this context before they're going to be able to process this. Then you can make sure that it is raised, whether it's by you or by you asking a question, or you can have your eye on, is my tech lead going to ask that question for me? And if they don't, then you can step in or however you want to approach it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting how those two overlap now, where you kind of think about what could be things that is important to some of the people that that come in. I think it, it plays into mindfulness, which you spoke about, um, which you mentioned earlier, where it's being mindful of who will be in the room. And I think for me that I have found is in a remote working culture, also being mindful of who is not in the room so that when you make decisions or discuss important topics that you are have that in mind. So that you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before we talk about this further, we need to make sure we take notes about this because X or Y, this or that person is not here and they would 
definitely have an opinion about this. And I think before we make a final decision, we need to bring this to this person. Um, you know, the fact that they're off sick shouldn't be, they shouldn't walk into the office and be like, hey, how are you guys doing? And it's like, oh, by the way, this has changed. And like, huh? Wait, uh, I have strong feelings about this. Oh, too bad you were sick. Totally. You know, that. that uh, so I, that's something that I've thought about quite a lot. And basically because it happened to me a number of times and I know how that feels. So I'm like, I don't want that to happen to anybody else. Well, and if we're honest, that happened in the office too. It's not just remote work cultures. If somebody's sick or other things. There was a fascinating conversation I had recently with Amy Phillips, who works at GitLab, which is a fully asynchronous company. Everything is async first, which doesn't mean they don't have meetings, but it means that every meeting has a document ahead of time and a document afterwards. And you know, any sort of decision is happening asynchronously, generally, because in a distributed worldwide global workforce, there is no one time when you can get everyone in a room. So you have to build your processes around an asynchronous, it's going to be there, it's going to update. And that, that does stretch out timelines for decision-making, but it also makes sure that you always are including the people who need to get included. Yeah, for sure. Do you, I, I want to kind of jump back a little bit to something that uh, Skolgvi said, um, and that is the idea of mitigating risk when you off make a, you know make an offer to somebody to take somebody on to the team. I I get that, and I I understand in, in the often high pressure environment of tech companies and that kind of thing, mitigating risk is like paramount. Um, <clears throat> but I do wonder if sometimes we take things a little too seriously. And we exclude people and don't give people a chance because we are too much focused on the, yeah, but what if they're not great side of it? Um, and kind of wanting things to be too much of a sure thing as opposed to giving somebody a chance. And if it doesn't work out, it's okay. At least, you know, you gave somebody a chance. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends a lot on your organizational maturity. Do you have the capacity to, I mean, the same thing comes out with hiring juniors, right? Do you have the capacity right now to mentor that person and give them the best possible chance of success? If you don't, should you really be hiring juniors? Now, I do think that we as an industry over bias towards seniors and struggle because of it. Like we should be building the capacity um, in all of our organizations to hire and mentor junior engineers. But I think when you, you know, that it ties right into that risk management. It's like if you're going to hire somebody and it's going to be sink or swim, then you probably want a sure bet. Whereas if you're going to hire someone and you have the capacity, whether it's your engineering manager or a more senior engineer or someone else to kind of mentor them, have almost an apprenticeship type of setup, you can take a lot more risk in that environment because you've got somebody there who's helping make sure that it works out mm, so it's, it's again it's about a larger culture change that needs to happen you know within the industry maybe I think so you know as a whole even almost or you as an individual can can do that where you say okay i'm going to hire this person that's higher risk 
And the way that I'm mitigating that risk is I'm going to be on hands as a mentor, mm-hmm. hands on as a mentor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Like I, that doesn't require a larger change at my company. However, it does require me as the hiring manager to be cognizant of the fact that I am making this choice as a risk and I should then follow through with making sure they have the support they need. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that not goes planned and end badly. Um, so yeah, I, I totally get that. I, I agree with you. Um, I think one question I have, and this is like, it's very like in the moment kind of thing. Um, but it, I think it's important to talk about, and I think it touches on, on many different aspects and one of them being mental, mental health and just how you take care of your mental health when you're struggling with questions like this. What, because I, and the reason I ask is to add a little more context. Um, the reason I ask is because it comes up a lot for me because of the mycelium network and the group of folks that's in there. Um, <clears throat> is this fear, and I'm not like even over exaggerating, like a true fear uh, from entry level folks that think I've spent a year learning stuff. I, I'm now at a point where I feel like I want to start looking for opportunities. But everything around me is saying that there's no more space for me because of AI. Companies are not hiring juniors anymore because they'll just pay for a co-pilot subscription instead of paying me a salary and benefits and, and, and. Um, and I constantly have to explain to people about this, but it, the fact is that they are, they are faced with this on social media a lot where people are in as many words saying, look at what I made with this. I don't need a junior anymore. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's, uh, people feel very, very despondent. I, I have a, my sister's boyfriend. I, I have to speak to him a lot because I can see it in his face that he's feeling, uh-oh, I don't know if this is going to happen. And he really wants to make a career change, but he's like, I don't know if this is ever going to happen for me. Why do we, why do we tell folks like this? I, you know, is it true? Yeah. So... I'm going to come at this from a few different angles. So first off, I think the AI hype bubble has caused more harm than help. Uh, AI is really cool. There's some really powerful functionality that it enables. And it does not replace an engineer. It does not replace a writer. It does not replace a human being in any of these places. You know, we've got people really hyping up what you can do with it. Uh, I, I, somebody described to me, they said, you know, AI products are the perfect, like demo works amazing out of the box. Production is a disaster, right? That happens all that there. It's really easy to make a really good demo with the new wave of AI and write your whole product from scratch using this. And I crafted my prompt just right, but I'm not going to tell you how much time went into crafting that prompt. And I did this thing and now I have it and it works as I want it to do today and never tell you that if I need to modify it, it's going to be a pain in the butt and I'm going to have to go and understand what, how that code works. I'm going to have to do these things. Like all of the like productivity boost from AI, there is some that is there across the board, but most of it is for writing Greenfield's code. Brand new code that I don't have to worry about maintenance. I don't have to worry about interacting with existing systems very much. Um, writing code with AI generally, like it doesn't, 
unless you actually already understand the systems, it's not that helpful. So it can boost productivity of engineers. It does not replace engineers. And I think people who are trying to use it to replace engineers are likely already discovering how it falls down in that use case, but they're not tweeting about that. They're not talking about that online because that's not nearly as sexy. Um, I think companies that are going all in on using AI to replace engineers are going to, are, are struggling and are going to struggle more. It doesn't need that. Now that's today. I will say it is possible that it will get better at generating code. And this gets a little bit to, to sort of what we were talking about. There was a talk about this at, at a recent engineering leadership conference I went to. Writing code is a very small part of what engineers do. It's important, but it's kind of the kernel in the middle of lots of different things, right? You start from trying to take some sort of poorly described problem and understand it well enough that you can express a solution, create an architecture, create an outcome, write some functional specs potentially, then you write some code, then you're validating, does this actually meet it? Then you're, you're sort of going back and forth with stakeholders. Is this right? Is this wrong? And kind of iterating around it. Like there's this whole process around writing code. Now it is true that as a junior developer, you are not doing all of those steps. And so you may not have visibility into all the things. And it feels like AI is replacing all of what I could do. Uh, but it's really not replacing all of what you're going to do in six months or a year because you're, there's a lot more to it than writing code. Um, there are people and companies who are short-sightedly saying, oh, great, I'm a senior developer. I can use this to improve my productivity, and now I don't need to hire a, a junior. And neglecting the fact that in six months, that junior would be more productive than your AI helper, and then in 12 months, they're going to be going on, right? But I think that that is uh, mostly confined to uh, sort of personalities on Twitter pushing an agenda about AI and not so much actual businesses hiring developers. So that's like kind of all of that. However, I, I do want to come back to what I think has been our theme in this conversation, which is it doesn't mean that it's easy. It has been hard to find an entry-level developer position for pretty much like I would say nine out of the last 10 years at least. And that's through boom times. Yep. Finding your first software development position is the hardest job you will ever find. Because mm -hmm. once you've gotten in and you've had a job for a while and you've built a track record, it gets, and you've built some, some network connections, mm -hmm. it gets so much easier. Yep. But finding an entry-level software development job has never, ever, ever been easy for anyone. And AI has not changed that. I don't think it's made it better, but it, I don't think it's made it that much worse. It certainly hasn't made it better, right? It's going to be hard. We could blame it on AI, but I don't think that's the reason. It's hard. Very, very true. And it, and it probably arcs back to what you just said in, uh, a little bit ago. It's, it's that you have to set up your work culture to be welcoming to juniors by having the mentorship, by saying that, yes, when we do take on these juniors, it will take away 20% of our senior developers' time because they will need to mentor these folks. But in six months, in 12 months, we're going to be glad we did it because we're going to have people who not only have grown as developers, but have grown as software engineers and understand the domain that we're working in, the problems we're trying to solve, the things we've tried and that didn't work. And the things we haven't tried that we might maybe should try and uh, try now. And 
that is going to be hard to replicate in any other way. So it's like we need to change the way we think and reason about this. Yes. And there's more opportunity for that when things are going well. Yes, of course. So yeah. the big tech companies, when they were expanding rapidly, they could not hire lots and lots of seniors. And they have the capacity to hire people in and send them to internal boot camps mm -hmm. and train them mm -hmm. and get them going. And they were. And they are not now. Yes. They are shrinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And similarly, startups, when they are once they get to the point where they're scaling up, they, they're at scale-ups, they have some sort of product market fit, they've got a whole bunch of money in the bank, they're getting bigger, they cannot hire seniors fast enough. They're willing to hire some juniors and do that investment in training and mentorship. Right now, times are hard, which has nothing to do with AI. Yeah. And that makes it much, much harder on finding an entry-level position. There just aren't that many out there right now. Yeah, that's very true. I'm going to throw two phrases out at you, and um, we'll see where they land. This, both of these come from your podcast. Um, so let's see where, where it takes your brain. So the first phrase is, a phone looking for a charger. And the second one is, how do you fill your cup? Phone looking for a charger, and how do you fill your cup? So I think both of those are from the Sarah Drasner interview. Uh, and I think they have to do similarly. I mean, this is something that is true more as you get into management, but I believe is true for every person, which is that doing work is hard and interacting with people is hard and it drains our energy. And as a manager, you're, a lot more of your work is interpersonal and dealing with empathy and dealing with problems and helping people with their, their interpersonal problems. So it drains faster. But whatever it is, as you go through your day and your week and you deal with all of the craziness that is our world and is the things that we have to get done at work and is the pressures coming in around us, like you can start to feel like that phone looking for a charger where you're like, I don't have any energy left. I'm going to crash and burn very soon. Um, and a way that you can start to try to address this is, is explicitly thinking about what are the things that give me energy and give me joy. So I mentioned at the beginning of this, like I will go for a walk in the middle of the day with no agenda except to be outside in nature and find something that I'm grateful for. When I come back from that, I feel a little bit better and I have a little bit more energy. A lot of people find exercise is really important for making sure they have that energy. And maybe you have a hobby. I like to do improv theater once a week. I go and take classes on improv theater. That fills my cup in the sense that it brings me joy and energy, even though it has nothing to do with the rest of my life. It helps me do my job because it helps me recover some of that, that life that has been drained through the process of, of being at work and doing work and, and living in our world. So when you ask about, yeah, both of those, that's, that's kind of where I go is like, life is hard. It drains you, but some things don't. Some things fill you up. You need to find out what those things are and, and make room for them. Awesome. I think that is a <clears throat> wonderful place to, to wrap this amazing conversation up. So in just to, close it all out uh anything you'd like to leave people with and then also where can people find out more about you and about the human skills podcast yeah um so i guess leaving things the thread through all of this is like we're human it's hard it's messy things are hard and it's okay for things to be hard 
and we can do them anyway. We can do hard things. My wife and I say that to each other, especially when we're like struggling with our kids. We're like, we can do hard things. It's okay. Like, let's, let's get through this. Um, that would be the, the final message. And then finding me, I'm pretty easy to find. You can find me on jsparty.changelog.com, uh, I think. Dot com. Yeah, changelog.com slash jsparty. You can find my business website, kball.llc. You can find the Human Skills currently network and YouTube channel uh, if you go to humanskills.co. Well, thanks so much again, Cable, for joining and um, wishing you all success with everything you do and listening to everything you have to share on the Human Skills podcast and JS Party. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it.